Thank you, Stacy. Well, I'm going to begin by asking you guys a question, and that is, have you ever locked yourself out of the house before? I have, and I've done it quite often. I, I like to try to go on a morning walk before I go to work. And so when I go on the morning walk, I'll take my house keys and put them in my little fanny pack and then go on my walk, come back to the house, and start scrambling to get ready for work on time. And what often happens is I grab my purse and I forget that I didn't transfer the keys from the fanny pack to the purse. So when I roll up at night, dark or whatever, and go to the front door, I'm standing there with no keys. And then I'm trying to call or text my husband, where are you? We don't have the keys. I don't have the keys. I can't get in the house. And this happened so often that we got one of those little lock boxes for the keys, and we cemented it to the pole in front of our house. But the problem was it wasn't only me. Other family members would drop by with the lockbox code, and when I would open it, there was no key in there. So we got one of those keypads from Costco instead, where you just enter in the code, which is great. Enter in the code, I'm in the house, fantastic. Except for those days that I'm scrambling and the batteries are dead on the keypad, and now I've got to replace the batteries in order to lock the door to get out of the house. And you know, it hasn't only been the house for me, it's been the car too. Uh, I remember when I was teaching my kids to drive, when I was teaching my youngest daughter to drive, uh, we would drive to school together, her school, her high school, and she would drive, I'd be in the passenger seat, she'd jump out of the car, run off to class, and then I'd switch to the driver's seat. Well, I learned the hard way that in a Prius, your car keeps going even if you don't have the keys. So I would get a notification from the car that the keys were missing, but the car is still going. Now, if I turn the car off, I'm not going to be able to get to work on time because she's off in some high school class. But if I don't turn it off, what's going to happen if when I get to work, I don't have keys and I can't get back from work. So I would roll around the lot calling on my phone, getting the administration to go get her, get her out of class, and bring me back my keys. And actually, this happened twice and within a very short period of time. So I'm sure the security guard there was like ready to call 911. <laughs> well, actually, it happens to my husband too. Uh, it's not only me, I don't know, family curse or whatever, but uh, he locks his keys in the car. So he got a truck where it has an app on your phone, and you can use the app to unlock your car. And uh, that's great. You know, no more problems with him locking his keys in the car. A couple months ago, I was at work, and I get a text from an unknown number that says, it's me, unlock my car right now. <laughs> and I'm like, who is this? And it was him. And he said, I locked my keys in the car. Use your app to open the lock on my car. And I said, well, what about your phone? And he said, well, I locked that in the car, too. <laughs> so what would we do without our keys, right? Our keys get us into things that are essential. Our house, our car, whatever it is, we need our keys. And, you know, there are also spiritual keys. And Jesus talked about this, that there are spiritual keys. Uh, they are truths, in a sense, that give us access to essential things. Uh, for example, in Luke 1152, 
Luke 11:52, Jesus said, woe to you lawyers. And those were people who were experts in the law of God. They were proficient in the law of God, and they should have been teaching others as well. He said, woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. So Jesus saying to these experts in the law of God who had the scripture, the key of knowledge that they should have been using to access a relationship with God and to live godly lives and to help others do the same, instead they failed at that. We see that what Jesus was teaching is that the scripture or the word of God provides us with keys. Keys that we may go on to live godly lives. And as we begin our study of Colossians this year, we're just going to look at the first two verses of the text. So if you haven't already opened your Bibles there, open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. We're just going to look at verses 1 and 2. Uh, if you look up the scripture on your phone, pull it up on your phone. But we're just going to look at the first two verses, and we're going to pull out three keys, three keys that will allow us to live spiritually successful lives if we put these into practice. So let's begin. Uh, we're going to read Colossians 1, 1 and 2. Again, the first two verses of the text. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So Paul opens this letter that he's writing from himself, from God, to the church at Colossae by calling himself an apostle. And apostolos is the Greek word for apostle, apostolos. And uh, before we begin, it's important that we look at a few verses and think, what is an apostle? Kind of answer that question. So we know who we're dealing with when we're looking at Paul, the author of that letter. Uh, an apostle is literally a sent one. Someone with a unique role, sent from God with God's message. Uh, Jesus was an apostle. It says in Hebrews 3.1, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. That was Hebrews 3.1. And Jesus said in John 6.38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So that was John 6.38. So if we couple that Hebrews 3.1 3, with John 6.38, we see Jesus was sent from God with God's message. Hence, he was an apostle. Now, we know that Jesus selected 12 men to be his apostles, people who went out with his unique message. Uh, we see that in the Gospels. We see that, for example, in Mark 3.14 and 15. Mark 3, 14 and 15 says, He, Jesus, appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So these were unique men with a unique role. They went out as representatives of Jesus. Now, we know that one of those 12 apostles, he failed. 
uh, he departed from the team. And after Jesus was crucified and resurrected and ascended to the Father, the apostles needed to fill that spot. So we see in Acts 1, 21 and 22, uh, the apostles laying out the criteria for what it means to be apostle and who they needed to look at. It says in Acts 1, 21 and 22, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So we see there the definition of one with this unique role of apostleship. They had to be there at the baptism of John when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, uh, present for his three years of ministry, an eyewitness to his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension to the Father. And then we see in Ephesians 2, 19 and 20, so now Ephesians 2, 19 and 20, if you're jotting these down, the purpose of this unique role. It says that the household of God, the, the church, is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So this incredibly unique role, and Paul identifies himself with this lot. Now, there is the generic word for apostle used in the New Testament. Uh, for example, in 2 Corinthians 8.23, Paul writing to the church there at Corinth says, as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches. That word there that's translated messengers in the Greek is the same Greek word, apostolos. So they are messengers, they are sent ones, but they don't have the official role of apostles. And also, in 2 Corinthians 11.13, it says that there are those who are false apostles. Uh, Paul, again, writing to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians 11.13 says, such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. So, like the twelve, uh, these unique men that Jesus sent with his message, uh, Paul was selected by Jesus to fulfill this very unique role. He had a special authority from God, and he reveals that right away in Colossians 1.1. But he adds, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, in verse 1 of Colossians 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, by the will of God. That word there, will, in the Greek is thelema, thelema. And he says here, he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So our first key, our first key, our first point, so to speak, is number one, commit to God's will for your life. Commit to God's will for your life. Paul knew what God called him to do. He was an apostle, and he was an apostle by the will of God, and he was faithful to that calling. Now, it's important that we think back and think about the conversion of Paul so we can see how this applies even more. 
Uh, Paul uh, was known by the Hebrew name Saul. His name is uh, Saul in Hebrew and Paul in Greek. And Paul was not always a Christian. Uh, None of us are, right? Well, Paul had a conversion point. Paul was a Jewish man. He was a devout and a faithful Jewish man. And as a devout Jew, he was persecuting. He was coming against anybody who was claiming that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah, who was following Jesus as Lord. And it says in Acts 9, 1 through 5, where it records the conversion of Paul. It says, but Saul, that's Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So he wanted to kill anybody who was a disciple or a follower of Jesus went to the high priest, that's the religious leader there, uh, and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, the way is the group of people who follow Jesus as Lord, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He was going to arrest them and bring them to Jerusalem and try them and have them guilty for following Christ. And it says in verse 3, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And later, when Paul was uh, recounting his conversion to the leaders of the Jewish faith, the, the Jewish leaders in Acts 26, he repeated the same story, but he added in 2619, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. He was sent by Jesus and he said, I did what he told me to do. I was not disobedient to this. He knew what God's will was for his life and he was committed to do it. Well, we might be saying that's great for Paul, but we haven't been called like this. We aren't called to the office of apostle. Uh, No, we're not. But as Christians, we have been called. And you know what? God has a will for our lives. He has a will for us. And you might say that's great, but I don't know what God's will is for my life. Well, you know what? I do know what God's will is for your life because it's in the scripture. The New Testament reveals what God's will is for the life of his people. There are six things we're going to look at that are clearly defined as God's will for his people. And this is adapted from John MacArthur's book, Found God's Will. Uh, The first thing that we know is that God's will is that all of us are saved. That all of us are saved. It says in John 6.40, this is the words of Jesus. John 6.40, for this is the will, the thelema, the will, same Greek word, of my Father. That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on that last day. So God's will is that we be saved and that we help others to get saved. 
that our life be engaged in the practice of helping others to get saved. We know that is God's will for us. Also, God's will is that we be spirit-filled. Uh, we see this in Ephesians 5, 17 and 18. Ephesians 5, 17 and 18 says, we be spirit-filled. Now, we know that every Christian, every genuine Christian has the Holy Spirit. That's what Romans 8 teaches. In fact, it teaches if you don't have the Spirit, you're not a Christian. But we can make the choice as to whether we're going to yield to the Spirit or not. And in Ephesians 5, 17 and 18, it says, Do not be foolish, but understand what the will, thelema, same Greek word, of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So this contrast here, don't get drunk with wine, don't be filled with wine, don't be controlled by wine, but instead be filled with the Spirit. We aren't to be controlled by anything other than the Spirit of God, whether it's wine, whether it's ourselves. We are not to be controlled by anything other than God's Spirit. We are to be filled with the Spirit. That is God's will for our life. We also know that God's will for our life is that we be sanctified. And the word sanctified, uh, it comes from the Greek word holy, made holy, uh, made more like Jesus. So after we become Christians, God's will is for us to become more and more and more like him. That's his will for us. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.3 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, For this is the will, the thelema of God. So this is God's will, your sanctification, that you become more like Jesus and that you abstain from sexual immorality. It's saying that you control your desires, that you master your desires, that you be more sanctified, more like Christ. That is God's will for all of us. Also, God's will is that we be satisfied, that we be people who are satisfied. We see this in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstance, for this is the will, the thelema of God in Christ Jesus for you. So as Christians, we're to be joyful, prayerful, and thankful. We're to be people who are, in general, just satisfied. It doesn't mean that we don't have passions and desires and visions and goals. There's nothing wrong with that. But we're people who, deep inside, we know that those passions and desires and visions and goals, even when we meet those, those aren't going to satisfy us. Because our satisfaction is in Christ alone. Now, the scripture also tells us in the New Testament that it's God's will for us that we be submissive, that we be submissive people. We see this in 1 Peter 2, 13 through 15. 1 Peter 2, 13 through 15 says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. 
For this is the will of God, the thelema of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. As Christians, we are people who are now under the authority of Christ. This is not our true home. Our home is in heaven. And so we can live this life in submission to those who are in authority over us. Of course, if they ask us to violate biblical law or biblical principle, we don't do that. But as God's people, he calls us, his will for us is that we be a submissive people. And lastly, his will is that we be willing, so to speak, to suffer for good. That we be people who are willing to suffer for good. We see this in 1 Peter 3.17. It says, it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, God's thelema. And then 1 Peter 4.19, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's thelema, God's will, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That was 1 Peter 3.17 and 1 Peter 4.19. We're to be willing to suffer for doing good. There will be times that we incur hardship because we're doing the right thing. And that is God's will for his people. So when we're making decisions for our lives, uh, sometimes it's easy to just roll out a piece of paper, write what the decision is at the top of the paper, make two columns. In the left column, all the reasons I should do this. In the right column, all the reasons I shouldn't do that. And then pull out your reasons and filter them through this grid. Uh, will this help me to be saved if I'm not? Or me to save others, uh, be a tool in the salvation of others if I am? Uh, will this lead to me being more spirit-filled? Will this lead to me being more sanctified or helping others to be more sanctified? And will I be satisfied? Will this reflect the fact that my satisfaction is in Christ? Is this a submissive decision? And am I willing to suffer for good? And as we cross things off the list that don't line up with that grid, we can say, okay, there's God's will for my life. So no matter what gifts or talents he's given us, uh, whether we're doctors or lawyers or stay-at-home moms or artists or musicians or athletes, we too can know what God's will is for our life and be committed to fulfilling that role according to his will. We know Paul, he clearly laid out here that he was committed to God's will for his life. But you know what? The first verse there in Colossians also, Colossians also reveals that he was committed not to do this great work alone. Uh, look back at Colossians 1.1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So Paul had Timothy there as his teammate. And our second key, our second point is commit to godly teammates. We are, like Paul, to commit to godly teammates. Uh, we know the Bible reveals, the New Testament reveals, that uh, Timothy accompanied the apostle Paul in his great work. We see this, for example, in Acts 16, verses 1 through 3, the first three verses of Acts 16. It says, Paul 
came also to Derby and Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. So Paul saw that Timothy was well spoken of, that he was a godly man, and he said, I want Timothy to accompany me. I need a team of godly people to do the great work that God has called me to do. Now he says here in Colossians 1.1, a Timothy, our brother. Now clearly Timothy wasn't related to Paul. We just read in Acts 16, 1 through 3, that his mother was a Jew and his father was a Greek. This wasn't Paul's physical brother. So how can he call Timothy and others brothers? Well, Jesus reveals how this can happen in Matthew 12, 49 and 50. Matthew 12, 49 and 50. It says that Jesus was teaching and that as he was teaching, his mother and brothers came to get him. And someone went into where he was teaching and said, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside and they want you. They want to get you. And it says in Matthew 12, 49, stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will, there's that thelema, of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus saying, this is my team. My team are the people who are willing to do the will of my father. That's my brother. That's my mother. That's my sister. And we see this not only in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament as well. There's a, a great passage about our need for teammates in the Old Testament, and it's found in Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12. This is written by Solomon, the brilliant, the wise king Solomon, the wisest man to ever live. Uh, he says in verse 9, two are better than one because they have re good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now, there are four neat keys in there, four neat keys, one in each verse. And Warren Wearsby points this out, four W's we can find. That first one in verse 9 Two are better than one because they have good reward for their toil or their work. So the first W would be their work. You get more work done when you work together as a team or with your godly teammates. The second one in verse 10, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. When you fall, you're walking. In the ancient Near East, when this was written, the roads were difficult. There were rocks in the roads. There were branches, things that could trip you up. There were narrow roads. And if you were walking by yourself and you tripped and you fell into a ravine or whatever, what would you do if there was no one there to lift you up? And so the same thing in our spiritual walk. So we've got our work and our walk. How do we do our walk if there's no one there to lift us up when we fall? 
It's better to have a godly team. Verse 11, again, if two lie together, they keep warm. So we've got that W, warm. We've got work and walk and warm. You keep warm together. How can one keep warm alone? You help each other out. You help the other teammates, and they help you. And then finally, in verse 12, and though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. Fourth there, withstand. So work, walk, warm, and withstand. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. The, the fourth one there in verse 12 Although someone might prevail against you, an enemy might be able to overtake you when you're alone, when you're together as two or three, the enemy can't defeat you. And it's the same thing spiritually. When we bind together, when we work together with our godly teammates, we have far more spiritual success than when we try to do it alone. Uh, There's a man, it said there was a man that... uh, taught his sons this principle by asking them to go collect a bunch of twigs. So they collected a bunch of twigs and brought them back to him. And they took the twigs and he said, now snap the twigs. And they easily snapped the twigs. And then he took the remaining twigs, a bunch of twigs, and bundled them together very tightly. And he bundled them together very tightly and gave them to the sons, and the sons couldn't even bend them, let alone break them. And it's that same principle, the strength of a godly team. Now, we see how God uses our godly teammates in the writings of Paul in the New Testament. For example, if you look at 2 Corinthians 7, 5 through 7, I love this passage. I love the way that it shows the necessity of our godly teammates. 2 Corinthians 7, 5 through 7. Now, Paul here is physically, emotionally, even spiritually drained. He's very transparent in 2 Corinthians, and he shows how really drained he is. He says in 2 Corinthians 7, 5, even when we came into Macedonia... Our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. Uh, He was physically and emotionally drained. And then he says in verse 6, but God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us. So there he was, physically and emotionally drained, but God comforted him. Well, you know what? I broke that sentence right in the middle there because he says there, but God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. He comforted them with a godly teammate. And he says, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort which, which, he, comforted, which, which he was comforted by you as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. You know, sometimes we think we can be these lone rangers and we want God to comfort us, and God might say, I want to comfort you, but it will be through your godly teammates. And Paul knew that. None of us were designed to do this Christian life alone. And you might think, well, you know, that's great for 
for Paul uh, because he had this godly guy like Timothy, but I don't have people who are as spiritually mature as me, and it's hard for me to find a godly team. Well, you know, uh, Timothy wasn't quite as spiritually mature as Paul. Uh, Most scholars believe that he was, in fact, converted to Christ by Paul, and Paul often refers to him as his child in the faith. Uh, For example, we see that in 1 Corinthians 4.17. I've sent to you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Uh, He was also young. 1 Timothy 4.12 says, let no one despise you for your youth. So this is Paul writing to Timothy, saying, Timothy, don't let anybody despise you because you're young. You're a young guy. And then uh, scholars point out that Timothy may have battled with fear and cowardice because in 2 Timothy, Paul's second letter to Timothy, that's in the New Testament, 2 Timothy 1, 7 and 8, Paul writing to Timothy there says, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, you, Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord nor of me, his prisoner. And so, again, some say that Timothy may have battled with cowardice and fear, but he was Paul's best friend. Paul wasn't looking for someone who was as dynamic as he was. He needed a godly man to work alongside him. And we know that Timothy was Paul's best friend. Uh, He was his amanuensis. He was the one that wrote down scripture for him when Paul couldn't write, when Paul's wrists were in chains and he wasn't able to write out the letter. He helped him write 1 Thessalonians, uh, 2 Thessalonians, 2 Corinthians, this book, Colossians, uh, Philemon, uh, Philippians, and possibly Romans. We know that Timothy went with Paul when he had to go to the council in Jerusalem, this very important council. Uh, He went to Rome, all the way to Rome in Italy to meet Paul, and he also was in prison for the sake of the gospel. So this was a godly man. He may not have been as spiritually mature as Paul, but he was a godly man. Now you might think, yeah, it's not that I don't feel like God. People aren't as spiritually mature as me, but I've tried the godly teammate thing, and people just let me down. They let me down. Well, you know what? Jesus' godly teammates let him down too, but he didn't give up on them. He didn't abandon them. We know at Jesus' most crucial hour, right, in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he went to the cross, he went to his three best friends. Out of that 12, he had three best friends, Peter, James, and John. And he said to those three, please come with me and pray with me for an hour. Imagine yourself at your most crucial point. Uh, Maybe, you know, you just found out that your child was hit by a car and has, you know, just moments to live and maybe the doctors can help to keep her life. And you call your best friends and say, pray with me right now, pray. And they say, okay, and then they fall asleep. Uh, That's what happened to Jesus. But he didn't give up on his friends. He didn't abandon them. In fact, Just hours later, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he needed to entrust his own mother to somebody. And he entrusted his mother to John, the one who had just fallen asleep. So we can't give up on each other. 
although we may and though we might and though we probably will let each other down, we can't give up on each other. We need godly teammates. And our small groups provide us with a great set of godly teammates. But you know, it wasn't only Timothy that Paul called brother. Let's look back at Colossians 1-2. Colossians 1-2, it says, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. You know, we will learn that Paul never met the Colossians face to face. He never met them face to face, and yet he calls them brothers. Why does he call them brothers? Because they were in Christ. The text says they were in Christ. As fellow believers, they, like Paul, were fully identified with Christ. And that's our third and final key, our third point here is commit to full identification with Christ. It's interesting because that second verse there, uh, the Greek grammatical structure, it says uh, to the ones in Colossae, and then it ends with in Christ. So there's this parallel structure, and scholars point out the parallelism and say what Paul is saying here is though you reside in Colossae, you're located in Christ. Your true identity is in Christ. And that's the same for us. Although we reside in Southern California, our true identity is in Christ. We are in Christ. And people uh, write about what this term in Christ means. Paul uses it often. Uh, it's a common phrase that he uses. What does it mean to be in Christ? And I love what one scholar pointed out because it has to do with Paul's conversion, which we already looked at. Uh, if you look at Acts 8.1, Acts 8.1, we will see that a man named Stephen had just been executed because of his identification with Christ, because he was in Christ, because he was a believer. Acts 8.1 says, and Saul, that's Paul, Paul approved of Stephen's execution. Paul approved of his execution. So Paul was there saying double thumbs up to executing this guy because he's a follower of Jesus. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Well, remember what we saw in Paul's conversion story in Acts 9? If we look back at Acts 9, 4, and 5, Acts 9, 4, and 5, when Paul heard Jesus speaking to him, it says in verse 4, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting Stephen? No. Why are you persecuting the church? Why are you persecuting those who believe in me? No. Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Uh, to be in Christ is to be so closely identified as Christ, like Stephen was, that when you persecute Stephen, you persecute Christ. When you persecute the church, you persecute Christ because believers and Christ are identified together. How amazing is that? 
Christ indwells the believer, and the believer dwells in Christ. And we see this explained in Galatians 2, 19 and 20. Galatians 2, 19 and 20, Paul unfolds this, so to speak. He says, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. He placed his trust in Christ and he turned from his sins, realizing he could never meet God's perfect standard. And then he said, as a result, as a result of placing my trust in Christ and turning from my sin, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's what it means to be in Christ. And we might think, well, what might that look like practically, this full identification with your role, this full identification with your call to be a Christian? I, I think we have a good example of this in uh, Queen Elizabeth. I mean, everyone's talking about Queen Elizabeth right now. We know she was the longest reigning monarch in Britain's history, 70 years. And on her 21st birthday, she gave a small speech that was broadcast across the radio and the whole world heard it. You can look it up on the UK website. I mean, they're very uh, proud of this Queen's speech. But when she was Princess Elizabeth, at 21 years old, before she took the crown, she said to the whole world, she said, I declare before you all that my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service and the service of our great imperial family to which we all belong. She made that commitment, I will be fully identified with this nation and my entire life will be devoted to this service and to these people. Now, we know we're never going to be called to the monarchy. But you know what? We've been called to something even better. We've been called to full identity, not with a country, but with Christ himself. Every single one of us as Christians is called to full identity with Christ. And we saw this in our daily Bible reading just yesterday. In 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 17, just yesterday, it says, For the love of Christ controls us. This is 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 17. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If we have placed our faith in Christ and turned from our sins, we have embraced this new role, this new identity, like the queen. We have a new title. There are things that, like the queen, we can no longer do because we are in Christ. And there are things that, like the queen, we must do 
because we are in Christ, because we are fully identified with Christ. We give up our life for Christ because he gave up his life for us. And that's what the scripture teaches. That verse there in Colossians 1-2 says, to those in Colossae, and then it says, uh, holy and faithful brothers in Christ. Hagias, uh, holy saints, it says in the ESV. Saints and faithful brothers. Uh, these are people who are holy, they are saints, they have been set apart for this role, and they are faithful. They are faithful to the role, just like the queen was, right? Set apart for the role of the monarch over Britain and faithful for 70 years to that role. We are called to be the same thing, set apart for our role and faithful to our role. It wasn't easy for her. In her lifetime, there were nine wars that she and her country experienced. We know that she had difficulties in her marriage. Uh, she even had difficulties with her kids. And there were times when she had to put the good of the country above the comfort of her children. And we're called to the same thing. We will experience difficulties, but we've got to be faithful. We've got to be committed to our marriages, even if they're tough. And we've got to say, you know, our kids, we put Christ's cause above even your comfort. That is what we are called to, as we are called to full identification with Christ. And as the text says, in Colossians 1-2, the result will be grace and peace. Grace, favor from God, and peace, an absence of war with the Lord. Well, if we think back to the keys, it's not enough to just have the keys. You got to use them. You got to use your keys for them to be effective. And we see that in James 1.22. It says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So when we hear and learn and understand, we get the keys, but we got to put them into practice. We got to be doers. We have got to use the keys. And we will see this in Colossians 2.6, which scholars call the theme verse of the book of Colossians. Colossians 2.6, it says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, you are saved, you got the keys, so walk in him. You need to live out who you are. You need to use the keys. So let's begin our year, our study of this amazing book, these four chapters that we are going to fall in love with. Let's begin our year by using these three keys to go on to have a more spiritually successful Christian life. Let me pray for you guys. God, thank you so much for this wonderful group of women that you have providentially chosen to be here, to study with us, to learn with us, to apply truth together with us, to grow with us, Lord. God, I pray that you would help us all to truly commit to your will for our lives. And if there's anything that we're thinking or doing that's inconsistent with your will as revealed in the New Testament, for your children, I pray that we would eradicate it today. 
God, I pray that we would be determined to find a team of godly people to link arms with and to do the Christian life together with. And I pray, God, please help us to see who we are in Christ, to see this amazing, even royal identity, and that we would say, because we are in Christ, there are things that we cannot do, and there are things that we must do, and that we would do this, we would embrace our role faithfully to the glory of your son, Jesus. God, we know that we would have none of this if it wasn't for him, and so we close our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys are dismissed to your groups. <laughs> <laughs>